0: Reimagining Black Relations, a podcast on solutions to issues relating to the Black race. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Black Relations. I'm your host, Dr. Francesca Fajimi. If you've ever had any dealings with Blacks, you have a Black Matter, so this is for you. Together, let's begin to shape and reimagine our Black relations, whether you are Black, white, or brown. Trust me, you will learn, gain, and execute just by listening. Come along. Welcome. I want to thank you for joining us. I'm your host today, Dr. Francesca Fujimi. I'm the CEO of MFE Corp and the founder of Your Black Matters. It's an organization dedicated to finding solutions to the issues faced by the Black race. What I would like us to do is really to start with National Anthem. As you know, in the Black community here in the U.S., we have "Lift every voice. So we must start with that.
1: Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven
0: me chills every time. I mean, unfailingly, unfailingly. Okay. Albert Edmond Lord III is an Emmy award-winning creative with a slew of industry awards and more than 35 years of experience in radio, post-production, sound editing, live theater, as well as independent film and video production. Later in his career, he transitioned into government and began a successful career as a public servant, serving the community as deputy of Los Angeles President Emeritus and council member Herb Wesson, who is the first and only African-American to serve as president of the Los Angeles City Council. Currently, Lord is the vice president of government relations and arts programs of Community Build Incorporated. The Tracy, California native, is a graduate of San Francisco State University with a bachelor's degree, double major, in broadcast communications, art, and sociology. Lord began his career in the mailroom of the former powerhouse radio station, 610-K-F-R-C-A-M in San Francisco, and advanced to the position of engineer trainee, learning studio construction, transmitter station, maintenance, and programming. In 1976, he was promoted and assigned as a full-time newsroom engineer. In that position, Lord produced on-air news reports, public affairs programming, and special feature programs for broadcast. In 1982, Lord served at 610 KFRC AM as the first African-American biracial production director of the major market top 40 radio station in the country. His duties included writing, directing, and producing commercials, promos, special feature, and music entertainment programming. Lord's production work received nine Joy Awards, five Northern California Broadcaster Awards, an Ohio State Award, a Gabriel Award, and the Billboard Magazine Station of the Year Award. In 1989, Lord relocated to Los Angeles to work at Production House, Todd Ayo, as a post-production sound editor for film and television shows. The industry recognized his work with an Emmy Award, seven Emmy nominations, and 17 Golden Reel nominations from the Motion Picture Sound Editors, where he served on the Board of Governors for 10 years. Five years later, Lord established his own company, Poolside Post, as a minority-owned small business based in Northridge, California. as a post-production sound supervising and production service to the Hollywood film and television industry. his credits include Law & Order, Twin Peaks, and The Band Played On, Having Our Say, The Delaney Sisters' First 100 Years, The Preacher's Wife, and Eve's Bayou, just to name a few. Lott was the associate producer and sound supervisor for the indie film 34 South the first feature film directed by a Black South African woman after more than 100 years of appetite. He was also the associate producer of The Fire This Time, an award-winning documentary about the 1992 LA riots. Lord has served on the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, sound editors, executive committee peer group, advisory council member for Howard University School of Radio, Film, and Television Department, and the Board of Directors for the Motion Picture Sound Editors. I want to welcome Albert Lord. As you can tell, well accomplished. He has done much. Is also another influence in the city of Los Angeles. Welcome, Albert.
2: Dr. Fujimi, thank you so, so much. And I am humbled to be in the presence of your esteemed guests this morning. So thank you so much for the invitation and for taking time to recognize the work we have done in the community, if not in the global diaspora. Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Albert. She's going to be speaking on exhibits on African American Heritage Month legacy projects covering 2006 to 2020.
2: Over to you, Mr. Lord. Well, Dr. Francesca Fijimi, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm just um, in awe of hearing Jackie speak and Dr. Ray uh, and hearing from our sisters and our queens of incredible accomplishment that dedicated to effectively making change. I want to maybe talk from a perspective that I'm hoping you'll see as a different type of journey. Um, Those of you that are those of you that are able to see on camera, one of the things that has always been a concern, or at least as I got older in life, is the value of color. Um, Obviously, um, when one presents themselves to me, the impression of who I am or who I might be from a lineage or a cultural perspective is um, sometimes of question. Um, so I'll just back this up to going to school and not having ever any idea of the differences in us when it comes to African-Americans, my family, was very divided in blending, if you will, of having African, having Native, having Chinese, and other cultures mixed in with the children. And there wasn't any dissemination about who one was or who one was supposed to be, except that I recall having been told stories. That when I was birthed, my mother, who happened to have been the darkest in the family, was elevated in the tribe because of the creature she bore. But what I wasn't aware is how the rest of the family nurtured this baby being, and throughout the child development, placed me it in a leadership capacity because they felt if any one of the children was to make it out of this circumstance of American society, it would be this one myself. And I didn't ever understand that until I got to be well in my 30s about the value or the responsibility. But I do remember growing up with my grandmother and having to take charge of cousins of course that were all of different complexions and telling me to make sure that when we come back every single one of them comes back or don't you come back so that responsibility of being in charge and again um as a kid I, I didn't comprehend what that was about and didn't understand the relationship people have on looking at you and giving an impression of who you are and what your value might be. My uncle was military advisor to an organization out of San Francisco called the Black Panthers. And as a child, they would hold meetings at a house next door to where we lived. And I had the fortune, the good fortune of hearing a conversation from a brother by the name of Eldred Cleaver. And he pulled me aside and I'm like 13 and said, you will learn more about what's going on in America than any of us could possibly. As long as you don't talk, they're not gonna know. You can hear, you can see, and you'll be able to go places that none of us can. So you find out what's happening and you move in that circle. And you bring to us what we need to do to survive and excel. Now I'm a kid, I'm hearing this and didn't realize the magnitude of that or actually what was going on. But there were other relationships that the Panthers had done to young boys from the ages of nine to 16 with different kinds of orientations. And aside from that, another influence of me was my aunt. Luana Quitiquit, who was the leader or the administrative leader of the overtake or the occupation of Alcatraz. And that we had been involved in that agreement the United States had with indigenous people that all unused government territory reverted back to Indian land. So a group of Indians, approximately 47 of them, took over Alcatraz and we were a part of that movement for three years. I'm saying these relationships with the American Indian movement and the Black Panthers because my initial orientation was revolutionary, was to struggle and fight the powers that were being uh, oppressing us. And in that course, the Vietnam War was upon us in high school. It was always the consideration of the draft. And I remember my grandmother saying that um, if you weren't going to go to war if you weren't going to sign up for it if you weren't going to go out there and work in the fields as a a, um, picker you need to go to school well to me that was a no-brainer I was just um, uh, excited to have an option or I thought I had an option and I had no clue what I wanted to do in school because I wasn't exposed to a lot of educated people because that wasn't our family. They were all persons that came out of the army or worked as um, stewards in the Maritime Academy. So when um, given the opportunity, I thought I might want to play music. And so my mom bought me a top of the line, Ludwood drum set and said, here. Now, not knowing the value of that, I still had drum set today, so I wound up playing music and being involved as a self-taught musician and trying to figure out how to maneuver through that area. And eventually um, it led me to going to school at San Francisco State, still not knowing what my career was going to be. And it was insistent that I take classes to get an AA degree, a BA degree in a discipline that they thought would be most appropriate. And I chose sociology because it was actually the easiest. And in one of the courses, um, I wind up excelling in math. So I wound up being on the dean's list for the first time in, you know, the three or four years I was there. And mom said, OK, you can take a class of your choosing. So I thought, oh, great. Let me take a music class. So I looked for signing that up during the um, registration period and was taken to a part of the school I had never, ever been before. The Creative Arts Building. I'd been going to San Francisco State for three years and never touched foot where the theater was. So I'm trying to figure out where my class is supposed to be. I've got a guitar that my mother bought that so I was going to take guitar classes. And I happened to be late. Every, the doors were closed and I'm lost. I can't ask nobody where I'm supposed to go. That's how smart I was. And I found a stairway that led to the basement of the building. And um, I, not knowing anything else, I walked down there, I got to the department and I came across these doors that were the hugest doors I had ever seen. They were actually the opening to a sound lock that I later learned. I walked down into the hallway, opened up another set of doors and inside that room was this cavernous light like a warehouse with lights but there were these students pushing around dollies with cameras on and moving furniture and I said to myself now what the heck is I've never seen this before and I'm you know a senior in college so I waited and watched this and was just fascinated didn't know when the class was over, I asked one of the students, so what did I, what's this? And they told me it was News Production 4, which meant it was a, um, a senior class. And I go, well, where's the department head? And they said, right around the corner. <laughs> I took my guitar, I made my way to it, and I met the department chair, Dr. Stuart Hyde, and I told him I wanted to take these classes. He looked up my records and saw that I had just made the honor roll and said, no problem. And so I stayed there for two years and found what I was gifted to be able to do, which was production. One of the courses that was happening was um, Blacks uh, in Television, where a collection of African-American men and women were working to try to facilitate how to have a better image and a look on camera. Well, I didn't fit that description. I wasn't able to be represented in a class where we're showcasing black faces and black voices. But they say, Albert, don't worry. What else do you know how to do? I said, well, I could work the mixer. I know about microphones, I've been playing in bands. So I accelerated and moved in the direction of the technology of sound. And what was interesting is that most productions that I've come to see, the thing that was lacking was the technology, is how to bring together great audio or good audio. So I accelerated with that and was fortunate enough to get invited, let me back up and not invited is the wrong word. In order for me to go to school, I had to take a job. I worked as a janitor cleaning buildings um, in downtown San Francisco and some other areas. And one of the buildings I cleaned was um, KFRC. Um, so there was a bulletin board that had a listing for departmental assistant. So I took down the flyer, made a copy of it on the copy machine, put the flyer back up, and that next morning, I called up and asked about the job. The um, office manager said, oh, my God, we just put that up um, yesterday. How did you know about it? Well, I lied and said, oh, the teacher at school told me about it. And so she said, oh, OK. So having the transcripts or, or, or my uh, information for her, she told me that I was overqualified for the position to work in the mailroom, that why would I want to do that with six years in college? I said no. I need the job. I'm going to take the job. So I wound up filling out the application, and it asked about race, and I put down um, black, American Indian, and white. Wound up getting an interview with the general manager, and i t- the general manager is talking to the sales manager, and they're looking over the application, and they said, "While I'm standing there, that I would be a perfect candidate for the job. That I um, qualify." educational life. I also qualified for their affirmative action program. And more importantly, I would not offend the clients as I worked through the radio station. I got the job. So I worked in it and moved from the departmental assistant doing janitorial work, the mail, and anything else they needed, whether or not it was public affairs, the newsroom, the sales department, or engineering. And was able to transition between the departments because I did not remind anybody of being of Negro, African American, or indigenous descent. And I had no clue this was going on. So I was able then to get trained to learn how to design studios, maintain studios, and program popular entertainment stations. It was a music top 40 radio station. So I moved through. Uh, The hierarchy went from a newsroom engineer to a second production engineer to production director. A job offer came out for a position in the um, station for operations manager. And I went to the general manager and said, I'd like to be considered for that position. The general manager said, not a problem. Let me get back to you. A week later, he brought me into the office and he told me, Albert, I've got some bad news for you. The corporate doesn't consider you an applicant because you were hired through affirmative action and your background doesn't provide you with the understanding of the target demo that we are shooting for. And to me, that was just mind boggling because I've been doing the work, I don't understand what you're saying. So we transitioned out of that job and we floundered around until I was eventually able to move to Los Angeles and pursue work as a post-production sound editor and was able to then be involved in learning how to build and develop television shows film shows and what have you i eventually opened up my own production company but because of the problem with um not having a strong relationship in the entertainment industry and also because of the history of trying to pursue um in union environments where you're not a component of that, even though I was in the union. I spent a lot of the work helping other minority directors and producers because I had a studio and I could produce their sound. So I was able to do um, independent work with some of the most brilliant young directors and camera operators back in the early 80s and in the 90s. And then I got the good fortune of getting involved in um a collection of um citizens out of south africa once um uh, nelson mandela had been taken over the presidency there was an ad that he had put out in international papers looking for uh, four different areas of development in the country and one of them was in the entertainment so it went through the department of commerce and the department of commerce sent the information to uh, the government relations person here in Los Angeles and said, we need any information you have to help facilitate this. The agent said, oh, not a problem. We'll send you it overnight. And Washington said, well, how are you able to do that overnight? Everybody needs like three months. He said, well, we've been working with a group of people and uh, we haven't said, well, who is that? And they said, well, this guy, Albert Lord. So I wound up being on this call soon after that with a collection of brothers and sisters that that were in uh, Cape Town, Johannesburg, uh, I believe it was Detroit, Florida, in this conference call. And we talked about film production and how to help facilitate the growth and development of the diaspora in relation to the technology that had been associated with Hollywood. About four months after this initial relationship, I get a call from a collection of people in in Cape Town And saying, Albert, we've just gotten done doing the movie. We'd like to know if you could recommend somebody to come down here and help us do the sound. And I said, oh, wow. Well, what's wrong with me? And they said, Albert, you're in Hollywood. You big time. We can't afford you. I said, well, can you afford to uh, fly it? And they said, yeah, we can fly you out here. You got a place for me to stay? Oh, yeah, we can do that. I go, well, can you afford to feed me? Albert, yeah, we can take care of that. We just can't pay you. So I asked the family about it and said, Albert, you don't go anywhere. Go do this. It was the most exhilarating and fun time I could possibly have imagined. And going to South Africa and working four months on the film Thirty Four South, um, it was just, you know, I, you talk about uh, the welcoming when they say you're home. Um, it was so. Un, I don't. I can't. I can't explain the feeling of landing from the airport and getting on the ground and just moving around. And you got to remember, I'm a blended brother. Um, it was just such a joyful experience. And one of, of all the things that I've done on the planet, aside from my two children, Nicholas and Joseph, it is the most creative and fulfilling um, production I've ever done with, with 34 South I'm deeply, um, deeply indebted in having uh, been involved with that. So we move forward real quick, and I'll try to end this. When I came back, I got asked uh, to participate in an elected office as a deputy. Now, remember, I grew up underneath the American Indian movement, the Black Panthers. So it was all about, you know, revolution uh, and what we had done with Angela and the Panthers out of um the bay area so there, that's my mentality but when i was told there was an opportunity to effectively change and be up community service when i spoke to my family they said albert try to do this because hollywood is fighting you for whatever you got going on so i wound up um transitioning from production entertainment and taking the exact same skills of marketing and programming it and applying it to the elected and i was very fortunate and what a blessing to have worked underneath Herb Wesson, who allowed me to take those skills and assigned me to develop these um, exhibits for City Hall during African American Heritage Month from 2006 to 2020, which has literally set the bar. And I ain't trying to brag with we'll pat on my back, but set the bar of what exhibit spaces are supposed to be used for. And it brought an understanding of our culture to the city of Los Angeles that had never been done before. That also opened up the door for the um, Mexican American Heritage Month, for the uh, Pan Islanders Heritage Month. There were other exhibits that came out as a result of the things that we had first done. And so the creation of those exhibits include and involved me making storyboards and panels. Um, and then I think the second year that I had done this, somebody come up and said, these are great. You know, you're really a good curator. Well, I'm being stupid. I don't know what a curator means. So I looked it up and it said somebody that collects and showcases art. So we have done that, like I said, from 2006 to 2020. Currently, I have recreated the exhibit from 2019, Blackson Cinema. Uh, and it's on display at the intersection of 43rd um, Street and Dagnon Boulevard. at community build is called Blackson Cinema. So if you're able to come out there, you can see that. Uh, and what's happening now is that we've got um, authorization to take the entire collection and turn it into a virtual exhibit that I'll be able to update uh, so that we have um, it available in the library. And so I'll just give you some of the brief titles and then uh, I'll open the door for questions. In capturing this African-American Heritage Month Legacy Project, some of the titles have been Hail to the Chief featuring President Barack Obama and the First Lady Michelle. From where we come, the art and politics of slavery, examining the art and the politics rooted in slavery, because there's a lot of things that go on in American culture that are slave-based, right in America, recognizing the Black press, including Southern California's African-American journalists on and off the air, Blacks in cinema, Blacks in cinema taking a look at Black exploitation films and Black filmmakers from the 1970s. And the last exhibit the city of Los Angeles has had called Stand Up, The Art and Politics of Comedy, highlighting the role of politics in the work of legacy and contemporary comics. So I am so honored to be allowed this opportunity to chatter. Forgive me if it seemed like I was rambling, but I was doing the best I can. And in music, I was out with So thank you so much, for Dr. Fajimi, for allowing this platform. Bless you all, and may Lord help us move forward in good stride, and in good speed. Thank you.
0: Another fantastic one. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what to say. Actually, Albert, now that I'm looking at yes. you, I can see why you look, you don't look
2: Black. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I—I I, What do I look like? I look American. You sure do. That's always.
0: <laughs> it's amazing. I've I've always seen you as a black person, but now that you're sharing your story and I'm looking at you, I'm like, he's right. He, he, you know, he looks different, but that's the bottom line. That shouldn't matter, right? It should be who right. the person is. It's not the color of their skin. And thank you for sharing your journey with us. I mean, all the way from there, and I'm sure you've heard a lot that you cannot even tell us, right? And the advice given to you that just shut up and listen, (laughs) I can only imagine what you've heard, right? It is, it's fantastic. But I do have a question for you. When you go through this process, especially as a mixed race person, how are you able to project Who you are as a person, not as a black person, not as native, not as white, because you're absolutely mixed. But how are you going through what is going through your mind to project who you are as an individual? You don't want them to see you as one color or the other, but as an individual with integrity, with character. How are you presenting yourself? How are you getting through this?
2: So one of the things that I, I am a stickler about, and I got this from my mother is pride and grace in excellence and doing everything that one touches as if it's the only thing and that you put the best possible effort in doing it whether or not it's your dress whether it's not how you try to speak or in the in the productions that you do because i'm adamant about showing excellence in everything so, that those that want to knock down whatever it is that you're doing have got to do a little extra work to find the flaw in the production. And so, I, I do that with my children. I do that with my social relationships with people I come in contact with, where I expect them to bring their A game. I expect them to stand up with the character and the vigilance that God has given us, right? And to recognize that we have the capacity to develop an image or a persona that's righteous, that is the appropriate thing to do, and that not to be worried because the impression somebody else has can work to knock that down, but you don't have any control of that. <laughs> I, I always talk to the kids about this, and this I, I find this to be funny, is that once you have that vibe going on about you, You know, the people that recognize that are puppies and children. The puppies will come up to you and say, hello. The children will wave to you and go on because your spirit exudes out from your physical presence. And that's how the best I can look for that protection is to strive for excellence and accept nothing less.
0: I love it. I love it. Thank you. I think Femi's hand is up. Femi, can you unmute yourself and ask Mr. Lord your question? Yeah. Um, again, amazing, amazing story. And thank you for for another wonderful gift. It's a question to you, but it's a, I suppose it's a question to all of us. And it's one of these things that I think as, as Black people, as African people, persons of color, however we describe ourselves, Um, It is that recognition that when all is said and done, we all know, truly the world truly knows, the whole concept of race is a construct that we live day in and day out. The question for for all of us really is, at what point do we go beyond that construction? Because it's not the end game. We are children of God. We are made in the spirit and image and likeness of God and as far as I know, and I've posed this many times. I don't know what color
3: anybody's soul is.
2: Entertainment or media or anything that has a social implication can influence a, a, a country. You know, it's historically significant that the Walt Disney brand was used to help the move the country. Excuse me, as my technology slips, was to move the country, uh, the Congress into voting an act of war based on the aggression and how it was perpetuated using animation and the uh, um, characters is Bugs Bunny and his friends, right? Well, you talk about how do we change that construct? Well, we take the man of the narrative. We construct our story based on our interpretation of who we are, but we give it in a message that doesn't fight or alienate the capacity to teach the listening audience, where we're going. We have to figure ways to have the conversation, to have the dialogue that educates, informs, and inspire more research into who we are so we can be better prepared to accept who we are. We have to control the narrative and take it um, to the highest possible level with execution of excellence.
0: Thank thank you so much. We must own this. We own the narrative. We own the messaging. Fantastic. Thank you, Femi. I see Karen's hand up. Karen, do you have a quick question
3: for Mr. Lord? Well, I have a lot, but I'm going to try and keep it to one. First and foremost, I do love the internet because I looked you up too. Very impressive, by the way. Um, And I don't know if you remember it or what ran through your mind, but the portion of the story that you told that really resonated with me was how You went in, you did the work, you had the qualifications, and then at the end, because you were brought in under affirmative action, because you were black, all of a sudden you weren't qualified or to represent what they wanted. Do you remember what was running through your head at that moment or what your response was to the fact that, wait, I did the work, I'm qualified. I mean, I was qualified enough to do everything, but now I'm not qualified because I'm
2: black. My initial response was a bit of anger. Because, again, there was no plausible reason why. First of all, I was shocked that somebody would come back and say that. I was not prepared for that whatsoever. As a response from an environment I'd been in for 15 years, I was just, for somebody to come back and say you're not qualified because we hired you through affirmative action is ludicrous. I mean, are you kidding me? I've been doing the work for two years. I was very hurt behind that. And, and, and part of the, the pain, because I think Dr. Ray said that we are war heroes. And uh, that is something I'm going to put into my personal story, because she's absolutely right. That pain, that stab has not gone away to this date. But what it did do is accelerated my demand and desire to do better. Right. With um, the sadness to all of the story. And, and this is. Uh, Part of the public record is i challenged that and said wait a minute i'm competent i'm capable why are you not giving me the opportunity to take this job whether or not um i, I had done any kind of um, work at a smaller market radio station why are you not grooming me to take on the mantle of this position of control and, and in hindsight again Controlling the narrative, they figured we give this brother this job, that's not the word they would use, that he's going to change programming not to go towards a white audience, but to go to an audience that we can't sell. And let me be clear, white radio, white newspapers, white publications do not advertise to our community, okay? Advertisers at the time aren't buying ads on radio stations that target a minority audience. There's no money, and I mean, apparently, there's no, there's no support in that. Advertising agencies and all of those media buyers are looking for marketing trends that help propel the dominant culture. Now, it's changing slightly, not enough. So that whole idea of just because you were hired through affirmative action, you're not qualified, it's ludicrous, and I challenged it. Unfortunately, Um, At the time of that challenge, the nation was not ready for that story, just like they're not ready for the Panthers and they weren't ready for the American Indian movement. And the needle kind of sort of had moved into inclusion and providing prosperity to those that are capable or want to be capable and need that push up. But you asked a very simple question, how did I feel? Angry. And it has hurt me to this very day. And I fight every moment not to allow that to change the way I view myself or people that I come in contact. Cause I I've been angry for a long time. Like Jackie DePaul Walker said, when she got out of college, she was angry. I'm I got that. I know that.
3: And I'm so sorry. Just one quick thing. And this is mostly to most of the panel in that moment. And because of that moment, it kind of made you who you were. So for everybody on the panel who has had that moment, who's had that injustice done to them, but has triumphed over it and become victorious in their profession and everything else. Do you take that moment as a gift? Because without it, the anger that you feel and the push to make sure that no one else puts you in that position again, has put you where you are. You know, like, I mean, in that moment, you knew that you were qualified in that moment you knew you were, you, know, you were unjustly taken away from a position. Did that prompt you more to become you know, a seven-time Emmy nominee, uh, all this, everything that you are now? Do you think that moment, I mean, if you didn't have that moment, you would still be where you
2: are? Um, when you talk about a gift, what gives me the last thought is that um, he would not put anything on our shoulders that we couldn't bear. And there was a reason that I witnessed that. There was a, for, for whatever reason, to have been trained as a technician uh, to build design and program because nobody else in the, in the entire RKO chain had that position. Um, a gift, um, I don't, it, it's a blessing and a gift that I survived it. Right? It's a blessing and a gift that I survived it and interpreted it as something that could then mold and shape my thinking on the projects that I do, which seem to have culminated in the African-American Heritage Legacy Project. Because all that pain and all that anger and all that frustration and not being able to do what I do, I put into the exhibits, right? And so what that did is it gave me the energy or at least the chutzpah to push through and, and create these things that were unimaginable before. But then taking it to a range that has never, ever been done, and they stand up as unique pieces of work. And I'm blessed, and that's the gift. But more importantly, that I can share it with you and all those that are interested and figure out how that will inspire one to move forward and do what they think they need to do to take control of their creativity.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Karen, for the question. Thank you so much, Mr. Lord, for the responses and uh, your legacy that you're sharing with us today.
2: My blessing. Thank you.